And so I, I started writing and you know, that, that was it. Like this is, I had no plan B. There was no plan B at all. It's like, I'm going to write, I'm going to pay the bills this way. And so I think, I think stories have even more power than alcohol, a lot more power than alcohol. But when it comes to content, what I want is not to protect my kids from things with which they disagree. I want to equip them to disagree. At one point, Random House made me write a statement of faith to have on file whenever they had people trying to cancel me, they would send out my statement of faith. This is what he actually thinks. I was never I was never a secret as far as like, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and I'm a, the kind of Christian that means it. Howdy folks, welcome back to the podcast. I just concluded interviewing N.D. Wilson, and let me tell you, we covered a lot of things, and I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, but I wanted to give you kind of more of like a formal bio as to who N.D. Wilson is, because we don't cover everything that he's done. He's actually done a lot. He has authored numerous middle grade fiction books. I think that's what you call them. He talks about it. I didn't know what middle grade was before this interview, so I think I just said that properly. Uh, he's also written some nonfiction. That's actually how I first was introduced to Andy Wilson. He, he wrote a book called Death by Living and it was given to me. I loved it. And then I gave it to Katie the first time we were dating and she, I think it started to enjoy it, but then I, but then I broke up with her. And so and that was the last book I gave her before we broke up. And I think it was the last book I read before we broke up the first time. And so she threw that book away and refused to read anything by Andy Wilson until recently. But we've, we've worked through that because, you know, obviously I came back to my senses, chased her down, and we are living happily ever after as of now. But enough about us. Back to N.D. Wilson. He has authored numerous books, including uh, Lee Pike Ridge, a children's adventure story, the Hundred Cupboards series. Um, he's also has, he's written and, and been the executive producer of a Netflix children's series called Hello Ninja. There's four seasons of it. It is it's ranked extremely high on Netflix every time for each one of its seasons. Uh, he also has a great podcast called Stories Are Soul Food. And actually it's probably been my favorite podcast for the last year now, maybe the last year and a half. So I highly recommend Stories Are Soul Food. I will link everything that I just mentioned below so that you can find out more about Andy Wilson, about his books, about his podcast, about his Netflix uh, children's show. Enjoy the episode. The Now That We're a Family Podcast. All right, Andy Wilson. I've already given a brief introduction as to who you are to our listeners, but I'd love to hear, you know, from from your own mouth, what you tell people you do, you know, who are you? When you bump into somebody that maybe hasn't seen you for 10 or 15 years, they're like, what are you doing with your life? You know, what's the answer these days? Uh, I'm coaching basketball. Uh, let's see. That's probably the most important thing. Okay. Um, I'm a writer. So I write, I write for kids. I write for families. That's, that's my emphasis. Uh, Love I, now I'm involved in a bunch of TV writing, but Mostly like middle grade novels is really where my heart is and where my my brand is. And I think that's where I will be probably till I die. You know, so I think when I've written a TV show or I'm on a TV show, that's a, it's a lot of fun. But I think I'll, I'll come back to like sitting on my front porch and working on middle grade novels in the end. I think that, that's going to be the the emphasis. What is a middle grade novel? A middle grade novel is is I had... Uh, described to me once by a national book award winner as all of the intelligence 
none of the hormones. I like it. So, but so how you think about a, a middle grade novel is basically the, like that last summer of childhood is like you're you're twelve, your early teens, like early teens. You can have you can have twelve year olds there. It can go all the way down to eight. You know, eight eight to twelve. Uh, a lot of people think of it as a rating, like PG versus PG thirteen. You know that kind of that kind of range. Um, I, I think of it as like a soft PG thirteen. Okay. You know, but it's it's not really a rating. It's a target demographic. So there's a big difference between how consumers think about those those you know classifications and how readers think about those class classifications. Readers think of them as ratings. Um, uh, sorry, the publishers, not consumers, how publishers think of them. Uh, publishers think of them as target demos. Readers think of them as readings. So middle grade is more PG, uh, but the publishers are targeting certain ages. You know, they're, they're really looking for that eight to 12 year old. Now, most of my, my novels, probably most of my readers are still adults, but the thing that, the thing about middle grade is that you're not entering into YA when you're in YA, you're in that middle teen space and YA is driven by love triangles and crushes and relationships. And it's all kind of obsessive about that. So middle grade to me is, is where all the good stuff is. It's where the great stories are. Uh, the things I really love to read, the things I love to, the stories I love to tell. And so that description of all of the intelligence, none of the hormones is, is one that I've hung on to because you don't have the love triangles. But you also, believably for the reader, can have a certain degree of athleticism and adventure. And these kids, you know, they can believably do things. You know, they're they they're not incompetent. They're not helpless. So I love I love targeting it also. And the reason why I did when I was first getting started writing, I, I think I got my book deal and uh, first one in like 2005. And I had actually had offers to pursue an adult novel. Uh, because I'd written some short stories and I had a, a publisher reaching out and I had the opportunity to write middle grade. And so I had to choose whether I was going to go literary commercial adult fiction or whether I was going to go middle grade fiction. Now the, the ceiling, you know, in terms of, I, I don't know what, what you would say, status, identity, uh, even put some money over on the adult fiction side can be much, it can be much higher. But I wanted to be able to write stories that had concrete endings that resolved that really like the good guys won. You know, it's like and if you write that for adults, everybody kind of poo poos it. That's sort of like, nah, the good guys never win. Like it never it never resolves in a satisfying way. You're, you're going to be stuck in the ghetto of genre fiction or you're, you're never going to be taken seriously. But I can write for. 12 year olds and I can really bring a beautiful catharsis, a beautiful resolution that everybody is all excited about it. They're like, yes, because it's for the kids. <laughs> like the adults are reading it. They're all, all the same people are reading it, but it's for kids. And so we can have this happy ending. Um, and so if you really think about it, um, middle grade fiction is the sweet spot is like fifth and sixth graders. Like that's like, that's right there. And then as soon as you move up and, and into middle school a little bit, but as soon as you get up and up into junior high and you start knocking on the door of high school, then it's all who's cool, who's popular, who's yes. in, who's home and all that stuff. Nice. Does that help too with being able to keep the content at a, at a place 
where it's realistic without being provocative. Because when I think when I, that's a big difference when I read, um, you know, what we'll call, you know, whatever the air quotes are, Christian adult yeah. novels. I'm thinking that's not how people talk. You know, it, there's this element of like, you know, yeah. they, they use more profanity. There's more violence. There's more, that's how at least Hollywood's portrayed it. But when you're reading, and maybe this maybe this isn't the right reference, when you're reading The Hardy Boys or The Boxcar Children or Nancy yeah. Drew, you're like, yeah, that's how kids should talk. I'm able to get into this story. Is, is there a, some is there some accuracy with that? Yeah, so middle, middle grade is, I, I, I love it for the, the fact that I can have concrete resolution, the fact that I can avoid content that I don't want to, you know, get into. Uh, and it's, you know, it's more, it's more content friendly. Um, and then also on, on top of that, it's a, a place where there's this, like this final magic. It does like park at the end of childhood. And so these stories are really, they, they mark the memories of kids and they, they mark, uh, who they want to be themselves in life, like who it brands them as they move forward. And so middle grade is really on a pragmatic level is really useful because nobody expects me to go really dark. Mm-hmm. Like in terms of like a, you know, sexual, you know, obscene ways. Nobody, nobody wants that. Uh, and it's not really like, it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with these stories. Naturally it doesn't fit, which is why I, you know, I love it. But it also this this final magic of like if you think about the last summer of your childhood, that's kind of where a middle grade novel could hang out and just and they do something cool. So there's ways like if you think about a show like Stranger Things, Stranger Things is a classic middle grade structure and middle grade story. It's just they they ramp up for the the adult audience, they ramp up the intensity and like the the horror and all that kind of stuff. And they move it out of that into that. They start thinking YA. So the way, the way Hollywood thinks about it is completely different than the way publishing thinks about it. It's like, they're just, they're entirely different, but yeah, you're exactly right. Middle grade enables you to avoid certain kinds of content naturally and realistically. And it also enables you to bring the good guys win, you know, good triumphs over evil, and it's this this great moment of branding the imaginations as people become young adults and move forward with really great stories. So the way the way kids, if somebody was like a real, if they loved Redwall, if they loved Narnia, uh, even if they love, you know, The Hobbit, it's like if they love those things, those those stories that mark mark your imagination when you're 11, 12, 13, like those stories stay with you in a really great and permanent way. And that's that's a big part of why I target that that demographic. Hmm. Yeah, just the the implications last for life, yeah. like you said. Yeah. yeah, I love that. Love that. So, can you kind of take us back to you know maybe briefly your childhood? Were you raised in a Christian home? When did writing kind of hit the radar for you, so to speak? Um, yeah. And then kind of walk us through that becoming a career. So it's. Uh, I was, yeah, my dad's a pastor. My grandfather was a pastor. You know, I'm a third generation believer, never like raised as a believer, never had a period of doubt, never like, you know, went and sowed my oats, never had my rum spring up. Um, in about my, my mom was an English teacher. My dad wrote, he was constantly writing. My mom wrote, but, um, at the time, not so much fiction, not fiction. My mother's never written fiction. My dad's written some fiction, but most of that came later. Uh, he was writing nonfiction theology, you know, stuff like that. And then, um, 
sixth grade, uh, I loved, you know, I, I loved Narnia. I loved Lord of the Rings. I, I loved that kind of storytelling a lot. And that was, that was kind of when I settled in of like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. Like in sixth grade, I announced that I was going to tell stories. I was going to, I was going to write, you know, I was going to be a writer. Uh, wasn't a great student prior to that. So, you know, like that, that got, that got some amusement from my sisters that that, that was my, like, this is what I'm going to do. I was the kind of kid who could really, really complain about a three page paper, let alone, you know, write a novel. So uh, that was amusing to them. And then through high school, I never tried. I never sat down to try to write long form fiction. And I think it's by God's grace that I didn't, um, you know, it's like, I didn't try to tackle the big things I, I did. I loved to write. I was just writing scenes and sketches and, you know, really short pieces. Then on into college was the same thing. I was writing 800 word sketches, like just, just trying to, like, it's like, I wanted to make movies, but I was just working with photography. It's like that kind of a thing. All I was doing was just working with photography, which has immediate application when you eventually get there. So I was reading a ton and, you know, just grabbing stills, just grabbing frames. And then into grad school, same thing. Studied uh, at St. John's in Annapolis, Maryland. Loved the great books. You know, I, I my undergrad was just liberal arts. Like I got a liberal arts degree. Really was a classics degree. Um, ancient languages and and classic books. And then I moved on and kind of did the same thing in my in my grad degree. And it never crossed my mind that I was not going to be a writer. I I had. Uh, I don't know. I could say ignorance was my protection. I had no idea how hard it would be. I had no idea how difficult it is to really make it go. And at the time I just got out of grad school and thought, okay, now it's time to start writing. Like it's, this is, it's it. And so I'd done, I'd done all my vitamins and my pushups and my little micro training, but it's like, now I'm going to write long form stuff. Uh, Got married in grad school. So I was, I got married young. I was 22. Uh, married a surfer from Santa Cruz, uh, as, as one does when you're from Idaho. Yeah. Uh, and we, we moved back to, we moved back to Idaho and I was looking for work and I'd always kind of had this assumption that I would just imitate C.S. Lewis and I'll be a teacher. Like I'll teach and I'll use those, you know, those periods of breaks and so on to write. I'll use the, the, the rhythm of the school year to, to fill in my writing. I couldn't get full-time teaching work. I couldn't get, you know, any kind of full-time work. I'm newly married. We've got a baby on the way now. You know, it's like one year later. And I'm just like, man, I got I just gotta do this. Like this is that was I was just putting together different part-time jobs. I'd worked construction in uh I'd, I'd worked construction in college and high school. So I had some, you know, I had some skills to fall back on if I needed to, but it was it was just like an all in. And so I, I started writing and you know, that, that was it. Like, this is, I had no plan B. There was no plan B at all. It's like, I'm going to write, I'm going to pay the bills this way. It was burning the candle at both ends. You know, I was just, just going. Uh, and when I, I, I can't even looking back, I think it's hilarious what a terrible plan that was. Um, but you know, it, it worked. And so I graduated uh, 
2000 and the in the year 2001 from grad school putting together part-time work and by by 2005 I had a four book deal with random house wow you know so it was this this grind of like a part-time editorial and doing short writing and doing some teaching and just like chasing 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 and so i had this a situation where i wrote a rough draft and i'd successfully landed an agent which was step one and he asked me what i what i was working on and i sent him this massive bloated rough draft for uh what was 100 cupboards uh and it was one big massive story single volume massive story and i hadn't read it yet i just finished the rough draft and was like here this is what i've got right now and i'm about to go back through it he sent it out to every major publishing house and I hadn't read it yet. It was a rough draft. I was humiliated. I mean, it wow. was like, it was really, uh, unfortunate. And so that was, that was maybe 2003, late, late 2003, early 2004, somewhere in there. And then I start getting back these really long, nice rejection letters. And, like people are really engaging with it. They really liked it. They really liked the the writing and the creativity, but it's like, man, the structure's a mess. It's, you know, all sorts of things. Uh, so it was encouraging. I'd fired that agent. I talked to Buddy into becoming an agent. He had a book called How to Be a Literary Agent. So we were ready. Nice. <laughs> and um, I wrote Lee Pike Ridge. And I wrote Lee Pike Ridge as this standalone, single, tight, small, middle-grade adventure novel to send out to everybody who'd seen 100 Cupboards to prove to them that I could write a disciplined tight thing. They'd seen this huge bloated rough draft. I wanted to, you know, show them this. And then, but then that turned into something hilarious too, because I told my, my friend, this new agent, here's the first three chapters. So just send out the first three chapters. It'll take everybody forever to read it so I can keep working uh, eventually they'll, they'll ask for the full manuscript and then, you know, we'll go from there. The problem was everybody read it right away and everybody requested the full manuscript right away. And so he called me and said, Hey, I'm going to be back East, you know, and I told him I'd, I'd drop off the full manuscript and that's like in two weeks. So you got to finish, you got to finish, like go. So it turned into this frantic push anyway. And he drove into New York city uh, from Philly where he was and then and like double parked outside of a Kinko's basically and went and like printed out these things and nice. went and knocked them on the desk and we then we started juggling offers like offers started coming in uh and Random House had been one of the houses that had read my first giant bloated cupboards um rough draft and so they they came back with Lee Pike Ridge and they offered me a four book deal like cupboards as a trilogy and Lee Pike Ridge as a standalone and so I, I was with them through, you know, 10 years, Wow, 10 years. I didn't even then move to move to HarperCollins and that's where I still have some stuff now, but that's kind of the, that's kind of the story of it. I mean, it's, it was bizarre to have a multi-house situation. I didn't realize the first book deal, like the first offer that ever came in uh, was from Bloomsbury, the UK publisher of Harry Potter. And it was so low you know, I think they offered, well, it was like 15 grand or something like that. And that $15,000 offer came in on, on Leap Bike Ridge. And I was like, this, like, this was my plan. Like, this is how I was, like, <laughs> this was how I was going to like feed my family. Yeah. <laughs> this is, this is absurd. Uh, and then luckily, you know, again, God's grace, 
more houses were really interested. A bunch of houses came in and they were bidding for stuff. So I was able to actually land a, you know, a significant four book deal that meant this is what I do now. This was like, and that my editor who bought it from me told me when he bought it from me, he's like, just don't quit your day job. He's like making a living as a full-time writer is incredibly difficult. Uh, do not quit your day job. Men, the Growth Initiative is now open for enrollment. The Growth Initiative is a six-week live coaching program for men that are looking to grow in areas of parenthood, in areas of provision, in areas of health, in areas of financial freedom and well-being, really in areas of life that matter most to you. When I look at my life and I think of my faith, my marriage, my my parenting, my physical health, my financial growth and, and ability to provide for my family, I know that in order to see growth in those areas, I've got to have a systematic approach to it. So when I look at my ideals and my dreams, those are only good to me if I'm able to break down an actionable plan that I can then execute. And that's what the growth initiative is all about. Customizing your actionable plan to see growth in the areas of life that matter most to you. So if you're a Christian man and you're a husband and you're a father and you want to grow in those areas of life that I already referred to, hop on over. I'll link it below and you'll be able to find a timeline that works for you. Like I said, this is a live coaching program six weeks long with live calls each week, along with tools and resources to help you up your game in those areas that matter most to you. And you can enroll in whatever time session, whatever time session, whatever session works for you time-wise. Mentioned uh, you graduated in, was it 2001? And then you didn't get your first, you didn't get this deal that you're talking about until 2005. And, you know, when we're talking in retrospect, it's easy just to throw that out that like, that's nothing. You'd be like, oh yeah. But in that, I'm sure that felt like a long time. If you're a newlywed, you've got, a, you said, you said you had a child in that time frame. So at any point in there, were you like, you know what, it's time to face, you know, reality and, and go do something else. Did you, was there ever this temptation to compromise on, on that dream? There, there wasn't. I mean, the dream, the the plan I compromised on was teaching. You know, I couldn't get that that full time teaching work. I could get. I got part time teaching work. I supplemented. You know, I was able to go assist in this class and you know handle this class and 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 put together enough that we didn't starve. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was rugged. I mean, there's. A, it was it was rugged. It was hilarious because we got to a place where our car blew up and like we had no car. And at that point, we had three kids because we had it, it was so quick. Like we had we had our son um, like four days after our first anniversary. And then his little sister showed up pretty quickly thereafter. And then I'm, I'm sitting here holding a pink, very pink newborn, still technically a newborn, three months old. I'm on a phone call with a buddy bouncing this little pink girl. Uh, and my wife comes over and holds up a positive pregnancy test. And I, I turned the phone up and just said, why would you save that? That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm holding a new baby, you know? And she said, no, this is new. And it was just like, oh my goodness. Like this is, and I, I just stopped. I lost track of the, the phone call. I was just standing there in shock trying to do math. So we had, we had little girls 12 months apart, almost wow. a day. Like we went into the hospital with our second daughter on our first daughter's first birthday. 
Nice. So we so we had those that Irish twin situation going, and they had their little toddler older brother, and that was all happening like at the same time. Um, yeah, it was it was wild. As I was I was picking up editorial work and teaching, and my my wife was absolutely in and committed. Um, you know, it's like, and there's there's no question that needing to provide and needing to like like break through on something was a was a massive motivator. I was not staying up really late at night writing out of any kind of pursuit of my own ego or I'm just, I need to find any path to fame. I don't care. You know, it's like, it wasn't, it, no, that was, that was never there. It was just, I have got to sell something. I mean, it's, and I love doing this. I really love doing this, but I need, there's a clock on the wall. Like I have to, like, I have to go. So when that did happen, uh, by the time the check came through and, you know, the ability to like go buy a car, like we were, we were driving super beat up. Like they would always break down. We were always trading, like the last car was going away. Yeah. So yeah, the, the four years was, was really something. Yeah. Um, we got, but then even then we got to the deal and it was like a big breath of oxygen. And then you realize what rookies you are. Cause I didn't, it didn't cross my mind, like little simple things like a four book deal man, that number looks really big. That's a big number. Uh, at least especially to me right then. But uh, then you think like, this is for four years of work. Like, is this, yeah. It's four years. Oh, but surprise, it's going to get taxed in one year. Mm-hmm. You're going to get taxed like it's one year's income. Yes. But now, look, you now have what we came to discover, what we came to call time debt, you know, where... Like now I owe people a book, you know, it's like, yes. and, I, and I'm, I'm working off of money. And then the later, the later money that comes in when you, you turn in stuff is always smaller, yes. you know, those, those later checks. So yeah, we, we, even then it was like, Oh, we're breathing. I have a job. It was like, I have a job now. Um, but even that we had a ton to learn. Sure. We, had a, we had a ton to learn. And it turns out there's not a lot of tax accountants who know how, how to handle publishing real well. So we had to find those guys and, and it, the rodeo didn't stop. The rodeo has never stopped because being self-employed, never knowing how much money you're going to make in a year, never knowing, you know, COVID can happen. The bottom can just fall out of royalties. You know, like you can never, you can never plan on anything yes. uh, at all. So, and now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm deep in it. I'm, I'm all the way deep in it, but uh, my wife's risk tolerance was phenomenal. I mean, she was, like, this is what we're doing. We're chasing this. This is always the plan. This is always what you said. This is what we're going this is what we're trying to do. Um, but it didn't, it didn't ever calm down. You know, it was never like, Oh, it's life on easy street. Now there's just a ton of money. Yes. It's like, oh, it's like I, I'm now employed. Is basically yes. what, it, what it turned into. Yeah. Yeah. From a marriage perspective, when you look back in, in hindsight, or, or maybe it's like, if you were to talk to somebody that's in that position now and, you know, maybe your kids will, you've got young adult children now, it sounds like they were born in that time frame. Uh, you know, it's like, would you, adv- it's a, it's, that can be a tricky thing because it's like you want, and of course you've got to be united as a, as a marriage and, and you've got to be on the same page, but then you also, as maybe somebody older advising somebody in that position, that balance of, Hey man, you know, this whole writer thing, maybe, maybe. And so do you ever find yourself you know, looking at somebody in a similar stage and being like, what would I tell them? You know, what would I tell myself? Because it sounds like you're grateful with the decisions you've made and where you're at now. And I'm, and I'm sure lots of people are grateful that you stuck with it. Um, but then 
when I when you picture your kids being there, you're thinking, you know, maybe maybe this maybe this other job actually isn't that bad. Do you ever yeah. find find that conflict now? Who's a novelist uh, and a writer, really successful one. He's got an extremely talented uh, daughter uh, who always studied lit and writing. And then as soon as she was coming out of school, it was like, you know, I'm going to go, I'm, I'm taking an office job. I'm taking like, I want that. I want to be able to budget. I don't want to be able to know. Like, and I, I get that. It's kind of the, it's the, there's, there's times when, when kids just don't want to do they don't want to go through that, that nature, that, that experience. It's really attractive to not be on a roller coaster. You know, I, I can understand that. But the, the thing is when I've, when I've talked to guys, well, let's put it this way. Here's, here's one of my stories. I'll, I'll just claim, are you familiar with the green ember books? Yes. Yeah. So Sam was a friend and he had these stories he was telling his kids and you know, he had his day job and he was doing this. And I, I, I had a session with him. I take full credit for this. And it's yeah. like, Sam, just do it. Like you have something here that people are going to love, that they're going to really attach to. You can make this work. This will work. If you clear out the rest of your schedule and put all that time into this, it's going to go. Just pull the pin and go. Um, and he was, he was really, um, I don't think I'm slandering him when I say that Sam is risk averse. You know, he's, he's a, he's a good buddy. He was a lot more reasonable and cautious than I was and a lot more, a lot more informed, you know, he's just a really, or just a, a really humble guy, but he'd, he'd seen what it takes. Like he'd, he'd seen what it takes to, to really do it. Um, and so with him, I was really heavily encouraging him. You need to make the switch, Like you need to just be a writer. You can't like, can't be can't be halfway on this, but the potential's here for you to actually support your family doing this. I mean, this is, um, and so that's an example of one, you know, session with a guy that I was really saying, go go be this writer, like go yeah. build the, go go do that thing. Um, and I I'm like this is why I take full credit for all that. But it's, uh, and he's done an amazing job. Like Sam's done an amazing job, as has his brother, as their whole team. Like they've they've done a they've just done a phenomenal job. Uh, beyond what I was even expecting, you know, it's like they, they didn't need to have done that well in order for this to make sense. But it's, there's other times when, when I'm talking to younger artists, not, not just writers, but somebody who's in fine arts or somebody who's, uh, really good at graphics. They love graphic, you know, they, they want to make that work. Anytime somebody's a, a creative and is going to go down that, the life of self-employed, like I'm going to go be self-employed creative, uh, whether it's film, you know, graphics, fiction, uh, fine arts, any, anything like that illustration. If, if they're getting married, if they, it, it has to be a team, it has to be both of them committed to it. And it's really going to come down to, um, then this is the, this is the weirdest thing is can, uh, his wife, if it's, you know, if you're talking about a, a guy who's pursuing this and wants to provide for his family this way, can his wife uh, keep from becoming competitive with his work? Mm -hmm. Like, can it be our work? This is our work. We're doing this together. We're pursuing this together. Or when he's like, when he's really like got his nose to the grindstone and is, is, is really trying to crush something for the family, is there going to be tension? Is there going to be this? Why aren't you paying? Like, 
you should focus on me and we should work on a relationship and we're going to do all this stuff as opposed to come alongside me. And the two of us are going this direction. So with my wife, she was listening to every draft. She was listening to every chapter read aloud. She was listening to me edit. So she, she has a really great editorial ear now too, because I, I would be reading her my chapter and then I would be editing as I went. So I'd stop, I'd read the line and stop, rewrite it and then read that line. So she saw the iteration, the iteration, the iteration the whole way. And she was hundred percent on board. If you're aligned like that and you're down for the whitewater, you're down for the risk, you're down to be, you're fine being poor for a while. Like you're fine being poor forever. If this is what you're called to do, you know, it's like, like if this is your calling and she understands, yeah, this is your calling and I'm, I'm here for it. Mm-hmm. Then you're, you're great. You're going to have a happy life. It's like, it doesn't matter if you never, you know, you never have that nice car. You never, you never have the, those giant vacations, like whatever. It doesn't matter. You're going to have a happy life. You have a calling that you're pursuing. And if you're pursuing it to honor God and your, you know, your wife is doing that with you, um, like that alignment will give you joy and in the labor together and everything else. Um, the outcome can be whatever it is in that, in that case, if it's, if it's a flip and you're talking about an artist wife, an artist, mom, like she's really driven to write. Uh, it's, it's a little bit tougher in some ways. And it's also a little bit easier because she's in a place where there can be some natural incubation. There's some natural protection from the risk. So, you know, if, uh, when kids are little, if it's nap time, when she's writing, you know, it's like, or if she's just saying, you know what, when the kids have gotten a little older and I have my mental energy back, like this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And he's not called to that. If he's not, he's not called to the creative life, you know, maybe he's working at a bank or he's swinging a hammer or whatever it is that can still work. It can still supplement because art and stories and, and all those things, like they're so essential for kids. They're so essential for families. It's such a, a key part of making families what they are. And so if you have a mom who's creating for, her children, her friends' children, her nieces and her nephews and and on down. That's it. That's great. It's like having a great cook in the house. You know, it's like just cooking soul food for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but if it's the guy and this is how they're providing, how they're going to pay the bills, you have to. You have to have alignment. She has to. The wife has to be in. Like she has to be on board. Otherwise, it's just going to be miserable. Hmm. And if is on board and they have alignment of this is their mission together they're doing mm-hmm. this together then i think this there's gonna be a lot of there's gonna be a lot of victory there and a lot of joy there yeah you know something that i feel like i've seen happen a lot in regards to maybe it's a writing project that the wife has a passion for or an entrepreneurial endeavor or some creative project that is exactly what you just described you know it's during nap time or it's during the margins in her day and, and the husband's just, you know, he's got more of a traditional career, keeping the bills paid. And then that, that side hustle or that passion project turns into a thing. It turns into a big thing over time. And then there's this kind of awkward uh, existence in the home of, okay, who's, who's leading this charge right now? You know, the, the husband was in this role of provider and protector, and, and he was clearly walking in that, you know, God-given role that, that we've been given. And then all of a sudden because of the success of the, of the wife's passion project, which you want to celebrate and you're like, this is awesome. Yeah. There can be this convoluting and confusion of who's making the decisions, you know, financially for the home or who's making the decisions in the overall direction of the home. And have you seen that take place and how would you advise people in that position? Yeah. So the, uh, 
it's actually kind of funny. This is this is uh, kind of exactly what my sister has, you know. So it's my my little sister. She she's a writer too, but she started out. I I made her write her first book, um, called "Loving the Little Years," was you know about mothering. Uh, subtitle is "Motherhood in the Trenches," about mothering in those toddler years, those crazy years. It's great, great little book. Uh, her husband's very successful, you know, executive VP, big company. Um, and she's really, uh, built a ministry, you know, a really successful publishing. Um, and I'd say she would hate it if I said this, but I'll say it anyway, like a social media ministry, you know, she's, she's reached a lot of women, uh, by launching something that she called the Bible reading challenge where she's like, like getting tens of thousands of women to go through scripture every year. She's, she's got a, you know, pretty significant Instagram uh, profile and a, a significant publishing footprint. You know, she's doing webinars for moms. You know, it's like, she's, she's got a lot going. Um, and it's, if she wanted to, she could just say, yeah, let's go, let's go have a career there. But she doesn't want to, she knows that career number one for her, like her absolute calling is her own, her own little mob of children. And in as much as she can show hospitality from that home, to the world, she will. But it's hospitality for her. It is not. She's not trying to build this extra career. It's like, no, this is a thing that's an outworking of who we are. It's incubated by my husband. Like he's he's built this whole ecosystem in which she's she's functioned, and it's their hospitality. So it's it's very much the case that when um, when a, a, a family's showing hospitality, that burden lands on the wife. I mean, it just it just does. You know, it's like. A family showing hospitality, all the work is happening for mom. You know, it's it's happening for her. But it's frequently being subsidized, paid for, facilitated in the house, you know, like the house that this that he's paid for, the you know, the groceries been bought with, you know, by him. Not always, but that's that's often the case. And that's kind of, I think, the best way to view it. Like it needs to be an outworking of who the who you are together. Like this is our family and the structure of that family doesn't change. And this is our hospitality to the world. So when my older sister is, uh, you know, she's, she's designing fabrics and wallpapers and she's selling all this kind of stuff. Like she's, she's doing all those kinds of things. It's an outworking of their family and what she put on the walls of their dining room and what she's like her, her home centricity. Like she's, it's an outworking of that. And when my little sister is doing these webinars and publishing and stuff, it's the same kind of thing. It is, it is a, you know, it's an, there's an ambassadorial related, you know, relationship there. It is this outward focus, but it is an outward uh, exporting of what has been made at home, what yes. was generated by this family and by this relationship. So when you get into a position where those, the nap time entrepreneurial thing you know, the, the mom came up with, she hit some genius idea and, and dad's like, man, this is, this is, this is really something. It's like, the question is, is it them? Is it the same, you know, is it the same thing? And are they going to then say, yeah, this is us now. And he's like, you know what, I'm quitting my job wherever. And we're going all in on this. Uh, that can be slippery and dangerous, but it can also be great. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it can be great if properly understood and properly aligned. And if that, the, the team unity and the understanding of how this came to be, you know, like that's, there's no reason to, there's, there's no reason to be scared of it. The problem 
the danger and the problem comes when you have a mom who's going to abandon motherhood to go be, I'm an entrepreneur and then I'm a mom. It's like, no, it needs to be my, like, I'm a, I'm a mom. And then I'm that yes. like this secondary to that, that core, that core thing. And that's, that's true for dads too, just differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a dad before I'm a writer. You know, I gotta, I gotta be ready. If, if fatherhood demands, if there is some demand of fatherhood, up against some writing deadline, I know which one has to win. Yes. You know, it's like, it's not, it's not complicated. Yes. The wish break, uh, you know, the, the right way every single time, whether it's for the husband or for the wife. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I like what you said, it being an outpouring of something that's taking place in the home, or maybe it's, it's like the, the customer or the audience gets what's downstream. Like the, the home gets the best. The kids get the first, the, the, that first fruit, so to speak, they get the best. And then, you know, saying leftovers almost sounds, uh, like a, 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 a cheaper version of it, but it's really, it's kind of downstream where it's an outpouring of, Hey, this was, this was cultivated here. This was, we were, this was happening in this incubated environment. And now there's an overflow that you're able to provide, um, to a larger demographic. I think we all know or have seen those situations where the kids got, they got the short end of the stick. And this is like a, it's tragic that this happens a lot in missionary families. It's tragic that this happens in those places where um, the focus was too outward for the family and the the kids are lost. So, you know, tend your flock at home and then that outpouring. Um, yes. For sure. Yeah, that's great. Okay, if we could talk a little bit, just kind of maybe a way to think, because we've got a lot of parents that, you know, they're homeschooling their kiddos, they're bringing literature into their home, whether that's because they're taking like a classical education approach or a Charlotte Mason approach, but that's kind of like they want to have a a rich literature um, kind of foundation in their home. And then with that, I and that's where my wife is taking our, our kiddos in our home, and I like it, but I also get a little confused sometimes because... You go to the classics, and I'm like, okay, content is all over the place in some of these things. And I feel like so many of these books get like grandfathered in to like, yeah, have our kids read them. And I'm like, wow, I'm uncomfortable as a full-grown adult reading this content. I certainly don't want my kids reading it. And this could kind of also carry over into into um, fantasy or into magic, you know, or even not classical stuff, but more contemporary stuff with Harry Potter. You know, how should parents approach things uh, like that? you know, when it comes to bringing it into their home. Um, could you speak to that for a bit? Yeah. So there's, there's two things. I think that you need to know the frame of your children. Like you need to know their, their frame. There's a lot of people who just, uh, make their kids hate the classics by introducing them too early or with poor instruction or, or things like that. But at the same time, what you want and what I want in my kids is I want culture shapers. I want, I want people who can build a world, you know, they can, they can step into the ruins of the West, kind of what we have now, like the smoking ruins and, and actually like, and actually build like, like Nehemiah, they can actually start, start rebuilding things. So education is not for pleasure, but you should enjoy the process. So there's a ton of books that I've, that have, you know, been stuck in front of my kids or they've had to work through that are not fun. And it's not fun for them. It wouldn't be fun for me. And if you're talking about a high school kid reading Moby Dick and really engaging Moby, Moby Dick, it's like, why am I, why, why, but why am I reading all these things? That's, oh, it, it really has to do with, um, 
engaging with greatness, engaging with like the, the architecture of the Western world. And so even when you're reading stuff, if you're reading Ovid, you're reading some of the stuff, of, you know, back there, you're reading the Iliad, you're reading the Odyssey, and you're saying, this is not... Uh, this is not appropriate behavior, Odysseus. This is this is inappropriate. Like, well, that's that's one of the things you have to talk about. But at the same time, you're engaging with it there educationally. You're engaging with it not just to be entertained. You're not you're not there to be entertained. You're you're there to uh, really inherit everything that came down from your from your great 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 grandfathers through the entire Western world. So. God introduced, like he introduced the gospel where it's like we have the, you know, the massive Greek world that then the Latin, the Latin world is an extension of it's like, and Christ comes, the gospel comes and in the context, even the ancients, like I love having my kids read the classics and even kind of some of the grittier, like ancient BC stuff. Cause I want them to see the world that Christ came into. And it's, you need to see the before to appreciate the after. You know, you need to understand like the nature of storytelling, the nature of what they thought holiness was, what they thought a God was, where God got his authority, everything else. And then then in the context of the Christian narrative and why did the gospel come? And uh, you can't even, I don't think, understand the actual story of the gospel without seeing the story of uh, the Greeks and ancient mythology. And you look at the Persians, the Greeks, and you look at the sons of God, the sons of gods and titans. The reason why they were all frantically trying to be related to demons, be related to these fallen angels, is they knew this was the way. The way was to be like related to a god by blood, which is what we are. We yes. are related to a god by blood. You know, it's like that's that's the way it is. They all knew that and they chased it in all this futility and confusion. It's like, and you see that, but you see the story of the Titans, you see that. If you only go look at the, the Bible stories. And you you look at like the darkness, the incredible darkness that Christ came into, like you understand it a lot better. You understand all of it. If you try to study the classics as separated from the gospel, as separated from God's truth, there's no point. Like there's zero point in doing that. Uh, there's a great deal of point in reading what the the really like say the zenith of civilization. Like the zenith of pagan civilization, of godless, meaning like the triune God of the Bible uh, civilization. This is as high as they got. This is as high as fallen pagan man got. And this is the darkness that it created. And this is where the light entered. You know, like, and this is how that light enters and why and how it, cha it changes everything. So we were really quick to censor stories for content. But I, I would say that my kids have never read ever anything uh, gnarlier than the Old Testament. Wow. <laughs> Just, so in any of the classics, in any of the mythology they've covered, not, nothing that they've ever covered touches uh, what is, what's in God's word that is um, useful for teaching. You know, it's like as Second Timothy tells us, like all of it's God breathes and this is you know, here it is. So when they read those things, when they're reading the Odyssey, when they're reading the Iliad, um, it needs to be in context. It needs, it needs to be in the context of the truth, you know, like the actual truth. Look what ancient man was doing. Look what they're honoring. What's the heroic code? What are they seeking? What are they honoring? What are they blessing? What are they cursing? 
like all the, the, you know, the confusion, but also those little glimmers when you see common grace come through and they, they understand the beauty of something or, or something like that. So I, I love classical education. I love it fully integrated, a completely fully integrated. I don't want ever classical edu- education minus Christian classical education. Like that, that Christian classical education, if you just go classical, like, I don't know why. I don't know why you do that. I don't know why anybody would do that. But when it comes to content, what I want is not to protect my kids from things with which they disagree. I want to equip them to disagree. I want them to have a clear eyes and a vision of like, oh, this is good. That is bad. This is dangerous. This is healthy. How would I change it? What would I do? And I want them to be in the driver's seat of authority. So I, I actually made my older daughter read Harry Potter. She didn't want to. I made her do it. And, and we had conversations the whole time. Because we're talking about what does the author think? What's, what is Harry doing right as a character? What does he understand? But how does he reveal Rowling's immaturity and understanding the nature of goodness? You know, it's like, and we're, we're popping the hood and we're tinkering and pulling stuff apart. I don't want my kids ever to consume any story of any kind like a baby bird where they have their head back and their mouth open and just whatever. Mm-hmm. Like I want all of it to be like active, engaged, tearing things apart, finding the good, finding the bad. Like it needs to be really, when it comes to narrative, they need to be uh, really, really perceptive and picky. Like yes. pickiness is great. Like not pickiness. Like I don't want to read anything but Spider-Man comics. You know, like, but, but pickiness in that it takes a lot to impress them. You want your kids to be difficult to impress. They shouldn't just read, you know, Fable Haven and Hunger Games and, and just whip through stuff and like it all the same. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they should actually be developing instincts for truth, goodness, and beauty and pulling those things out. Uh, but I, I wouldn't make my third grader read Harry Potter, you know, because they, she's still, a, she was still a baby bird. You know, it's like, she would just, you know, there, there wouldn't be any resistance. There wouldn't be anything like that. So it's about, it's about finding the frame and when is it a healthy engagement? When is it a healthy exercise, you know, for them to really work through. And once, once you're there, if you really know their frame, you, you can, you can help them tackle stuff that's harder, darker. You know, I've I've used a ton of an angel and clear play to show them films that they would never see otherwise because I can pull out stuff that, you know, I don't want them exposed to, but they can still be engaging with the ideas of something or, you know, learning to identify how filmmakers affect you and what they're trying to do. Seeing all the strings. I, wa- I want them to see all the mirrors, all the strings, all the spoke. I want them to be able to identify it and see through the magician's tricks. That's that's what I want yes. for my kids. So they can really respect uh, great art when they find it. And also so they are never vulnerable to simple manipulation the way I think most of us are. Yeah. I mean, if I'm hearing you correctly, it almost sounds like you're an advocate of very intentional, engaged parenting, which is a pretty novel concept. Uh, But I I think it's something that I'm an advocate of, too. Uh, In all seriousness, I think it'd be just in hearing it from my perspective, I'm thinking, well, I feel ill-equipped as a, as a consumer, you know, I feel like I'm the bird with his mouth open. And so does the parent first really need to adopt that perspective for themselves and say, boy, I don't, 
just because, I mean, I think this happens all the time. I know there's always a conversation and probably somewhat of a debate of the whole, you know, narrative versus content or how the two are supposed to work together to make it Christian or not Christian. And it's funny going back to so many of the maybe movies or, or even books that were, you know, labeled Christian because of, um, you know, the lack of profanity or because of, you know, somebody going to church and, and, you know, having a realization of something. And, but you look at the narrative and you're like, this is not, this is not gospel centered at all. You know, this isn't, this isn't true the way they're portraying it, but they talk about God. And then there'll be other maybe movies or books where it is, you know, people talk about there, there being a gospel theme through it. There being redemption theme through it. There being Christ-like figures, but you're like, man, how do you, as a parent, you know, discern that for your kiddos and, and for yourself first and foremost? Yeah, I think that um, two two things. One is you have to start somewhere, and you, in the words of uh, T.K. Chesterton, anything worth doing is worth doing badly. Um, don't expect to just be great at it. You know, expect you to take some reps and and kind of reassess films that you're already familiar with in terms of what is what is this saying, what is this doing, and so thing, Hunger Games is a great example. I've talked about it a lot, but it's it's one of those those uh, stories where a lot of Christians were like, "This is a Christian story," because a sister sacrifices herself for her little sister. Her little sister's picked to go off and get thrown into these Hunger Games, and a, her big sister says, "Take me instead." I'm like, okay, that's that's there's a there's a Christian architecture to that that self sacrifice. The problem is, as soon as she's in the Hunger Games, it's full on Darwinism. It's just nihilistic Darwinism. So it's like there's this initial like, the good, the best thing is to sacrifice yourself, and then we move right into the games where the best thing is survival, simply to survive. You can murder kids in their sleep, but it's just about surviving, um, which is terrible, obviously. But you watch that one little like walnut shell move, and Christians, I've seen so many Christians bite and say this is a Christian story. Um, or Christians who are uh, on one end of the spectrum. So if we created a curve and we're like on one end of the spectrum are Christian families that really love Breaking Bad. And on the other end of the spectrum are Christian families that will only watch Pure Flex. You know, it's like, that's it. And I think that both are wrong. You know, it's like they're, neither of those people are correct. The people who defend Breaking Bad are saying, see, it, it represents the emptiness of sin and how it goes nowhere. And it's like, and how, how many seasons did it, need to show this this life you know before i knew i mean that, that was like a, that's one scene i should i should pick that up i don't need all these seasons of what i call vice tourism where people are just on vice tourism they're just wishing they could be bad and that's why they're watching it or you go to pure flex where um there's nothing real there there's no real darkness there's no real there's no real uh there's no real struggle it's very, it's it's very superficial, and it's 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 saccharine. It's famously saccharine, and so it's just a Christian Christian version of the Hallmark Channel, where it's not Christianity, it's sentimentality, and sentimentality is different. the The cross was one of the most unsentimental moments. You know, it's like in storytelling when Christ went to the cross. There's that's not sentimental. At all, and yet it's deeply, deeply moving. It's as deeply powerful uh, moment of sacrifice. So I think that the key would be to start where you have resources. You know, start with in this shallow end of the pool, and and ask your kids and yourself of anything you see. What is this saying to me? And is it true? 
how is this making me feel or how is this trying to make me feel? And is that biblical? Hmm. Is it biblical for me to feel this way? Like, and those, those two things, like, what is it saying? And is it true? And how is it like, what's it doing to my loves and my loyalties? Who, to whom is it making me loyal? Is it making me more susceptible to the cool and to the worldly? Is this, is it drawing me there? And is that a biblical way to be feeling, you know, hot tip? No, <laughs> but <laughs> You know, it's like, that's it. And it's really basic just to start asking those two questions and ask of the movie up and inside out and all these things. What is it saying? And is it true? Or is this a lie? And how is it trying to make me feel? Um, and so then go go to films that other people have gone to and try to follow in their footsteps and pick up stuff. Like, see if you can notice the same thing. So um, I've actually started a... a uh, I call it lamp looking at looking at moving pictures uh, in my, with my own podcast. We're doing just a monthly film where I throw it out there. And then my co-host and I take, give everybody a month to have watched it and gone through and sent in questions. And then we discuss it at the end. We're going to break, break through everything because there's been so much demand for this. Like how, but how do I start to see these things? And so you look at uh, films like children of men, which is this gritty, film and it's a magnificent pro-life movie i mean just magnificent um you know just really powerful um when i watch it with my kids i use i use filters there's some there's some nudity in it that i filter out like anytime i'm always hunting on ClearPlay and VidAngel. i've got subscriptions both places so that i have a wider catalog um to work with but it's just a great film it's a really great film it's powerful it's pushing in the right direction. It's saying the right things. It's it's telling the truth. And then also there's places where it doesn't. There's places where it wobbles and where it's, you know, it's broken. And so that that resistance of like, even when I read Tolkien, I want to find things that he could have done better. Hmm. I don't, I just don't want to receive it. It's not scripture. So what could Tolkien have done better? There's, there's plenty of things he could have done better. And it's still magnificent. Uh, so turning that on in your head, what like, what is this doing? How is it making me feel? Is that biblical? And what is it saying? Is it true? Just that's a great place to start. That's like the shallow end of the pool. And then past that, you start finding typology and imagery. It's all that's don't even worry about that yet. Just start, just start there and then start what you know, start wading in with your story engagement. Awesome. I like that. But I, honestly, I'm kind of getting exhausted here because this sounds hard to me. And I've always gone like I'm like, man, reading or, you know, watching something is always associated with this time of leisure, you know, and rest. And part of me is like, should I feel guilt? I'm going to be, you know, totally honest here. I like reading Louis L'Amour and I just like, I like reading it and it's fun for me. And and I don't, I, I should, maybe I should feel bad about that. I don't know, but I don't know how we should approach just reading entertainment in general in this or, are, are there times where you can just rest and enjoy something? And how do you know when that time is? Think of it, think of it this way. If you, um, and the, one of the reasons why I pursue this as intensely as I do with my kids is because they, they want to create, they like creating. And so this is the, the standard that I pursue is, is like, uh, if we're going to like switch over into like a, if, if we were a winemaking family, you know, if I'd inherited a vineyard somewhere, you know, it's like, this is, this is that level of like, I'm trying to train winemakers, which is a different threshold, you know, than, than just a consumer. Um, so, but one of the things that that's great about st- like stories is that it is a place of rest. It is like a Sabbath rest. It, it is food you're eating. So it's, 
you're eating. And so you do need to have some level of maturity in terms of am I eating something healthy or unhealthy? But it just it's a meal and you need to eat. We need stories. Um, there's plenty of times when I'm watching something with my kids where I'm saying, you know, this is popcorn. We're gonna watch, we're just gonna, we're gonna watch some popcorn. You know, like that's that's it. There's nothing, there's no depth here. It's just we're gonna watch a fun story. You know, like we don't need to like over, you know, overthink it. Um, and the same thing's true of books. Like, hey, here's just here's a hamburger. You know, it's like this is this is not the pinnacle of Western cuisine, but you're hungry and you need to eat. So here, here you go. Uh, that's most of it. That's most of the time. It's it's kind of that. But I want their skill set to be up so they can identify for themselves when they're eating popcorn or when they're really engaging with a steak. You know, Children of Men, the film is like a steak. You know, they need to be able to process it. But one of the one of the problems um, when people want to just entertain, they just want the leisure uh, engagement is it's kind of like meeting somebody who tells you they love wine and you kind of look at them side eyes like that's a little you you're a little skeptical because that doesn't sound super healthy. Uh, and then they make it way worse by saying when you ask them like what kind and they say, oh, just any wine, all the wine, just any wine's great. And you should at that moment, you're thinking, you know, I think you're an alcoholic and this is a problem like this is, you know, like this is, you have no threshold. Um, and if they say, I want to be a winemaker, which is what usually happens with some poor teenage boy in the church who just loves stories, any stories, all the stories, give me stories. And then they start saying, I want to write or I want to make movies. And everybody's like, yeah, that makes sense. He loves stories. It's like, no, that's like that person who likes all wine saying they want to own a vineyard. And it's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, like, no, we gotta, we gotta be. We got to do we got to do a little better than that. You got to have some sophistication, some resistance, you know, before you handle something that's a mocker, you know, something that's really powerful and you're going to handle it with flippancy. And so I think I think stories have even more power than alcohol, a lot more power than alcohol and need need to be handled with a lot of maturity and intelligence. And that means we know when we're just reading a Louis L'Amour. Like we know when we're, that's what we're doing. We're having a hamburger, we're eating some popcorn and that's great. Uh, but we also know when we're, we're swimming into something that we thought was just popcorn, but it's actually trying to undermine, undermine everything we know about the world. You know, it's like, it's, yes. it presents itself as popcorn, but it's actually uh, got some, got some dark intents, you know? Yes. And there's a lot of that too. And yes. that's basically most of what's on Netflix. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I don't even know if it's uh subtle anymore, you know, which I think it's, which big time actually is ironic. It actually gives me hope for Christian art and for Christian storytelling because of how, how, uh, the, the roles haven't, I think are being reversed here with there being such an overt agenda now that's being, in my opinion, and maybe you can comment to this. There's such an overt, they feel like Christian movies. My wife says this all the time. She goes, wow, like that was the part where they just gave the gospel, the, that step-by-step gospel message in a Christian movie that totally derailed the narrative. And now that's happening in, in Hollywood movies. And I'm like, well, that's not going to last, you know, like that, because people see right through that. And if anything, you go back to the last 50 years when they were able to be subtle in their messaging, that's been far more effective. That's been far more, uh, it's gotten their hook in society. And so I'm kind of actually optimistic because I think, man, Christians have an opportunity here to kind of fill in this void of good storytelling because 
big media and big storytellers and the money is going to this, you know, they're really kind of falling to this agenda and they're and they're forcing it into their stories. I don't know if you see that being a thing or not. Very much so. I think I think your read on that is is spot on. I think that's exactly what's happening. And there's a huge opportunity for Christians to tell yeah. great stories and not their own propaganda. Like avoid all propaganda formats and tell great, good, true, beautiful stories. Yes. Yes, I like that. Okay, if we can move in to uh, to your Netflix show. You know, yeah. first, I mean, explain yourself. No, I'm joking. Uh, in, in all seriousness, how how did that come about? And how would you, you know, because obviously it's a huge, huge company, huge platform. And you at one point, I don't know if this is still the case, you were like the number one children's show on there. Was that, is that true? Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we, uh, we had four seasons and three of those four seasons were, I think, I think you could say charted, you know, like we're yep. way, um, and it was, it all started because my three-year-old at the time, she's now 13, but my three-year-old at the time brought me over one of my novels and, and asked me where her books were. She gave it to me. And it's like, where are my books? And so that night I sat down and started working on a little board book for her called Hello Ninja. Nice. This, you know, one for her. And then uh, through a, a series of wild events, I was like, you know what? I don't want to wait for New York publishing timelines. I'm just going to self-publish this. We did, and then Starbucks picked it as a pick of the week with their iBook, and it kind of like it it took off, and Target picked it up, and you know I ended up selling it to HarperCollins just to deal with all the inventory and everything else. Um, and then I was in LA on a different project, and a producer that I had, uh, had asked if they could try to put together a show, um, I said sure on Hello Ninja, and I said as long as I don't have to do anything. Uh, that's that was the rule, but I was in LA and. I got a call and said, Hey, we're pitching Netflix today. If you want to come by. And so I did. Uh, and then we actually had uh, a bit of a meltdown in that meeting. There's all these people in there uh, from Netflix and the writer who's supposed to pitch kind of collapsed and just lost track, like just melted down with nervousness. And so the Netflix execs looked, looked at me and said, so what's the show? Um, so I got to have like an impromptu, like show pitch. Wow. My pitch consisted of, uh, Basically, it's the Sunday panels of Calvin and Hobbes, but with without the cynical downbeat right at the end. We're just going to stay in this joyful, you know, exuberant place. And they said, awesome. They ordered four seasons. Wow. Um, so, I mean, it, it was a, uh, it was like, great, so much for not having to do anything. Yeah. Um, then they, they pulled me in and I had to do, I had to do quite a lot, actually. And it was, it was a blast. So the, the thing about it, though, is for me is like, I've, I've always been Daniel in Babylon. You know, I've never, I've never not been. So when I started, something I left out of my little story about becoming a writer is when I started out, I thought two things. One is I thought I'll have to be a teacher. Like I'm going to be a teacher and I'm going to write. And then I'm also, um, I'm probably going to have to publish with some small publishers first, probably some Christian publishers, and then work my way up to big publishers like, a baseball player going through the minor leagues. I mean, that was kind of how I viewed myself. Instead, uh, I only could get part-time teaching. I couldn't get full-time teaching work. And every Christian publishing house rejected me. So in that four-year interim where we're talking, we're talking about like, man, that was that was a slog. They all said, no, thank you. 
And the thing that was really interesting is that they also said, hey, we're looking for fantasy. We're, we're looking for these things. We're looking for Christian fantasy, all this other stuff. It's like, that's that's what I do. So I'm sending them things and they would, it was like, I've seen this a ton of times now, especially with Christians in film and in publishing. They say what they want and they know it would be best if they did it. This is what they should do. And they still get scared when they get there because they're worried about, they, they need it to be more pure flexi. They need it to be, you know, really propagandistic instead of just a good story. So I just got nosed across the board. And then when finally I showed up in New York, you know, we ended up with five major houses, you know, trying to buy my stuff. And I'm a, I'm a Christian and it's just, I guess we're just going to the major leagues. I tried to make it in the minor leagues uh, and failed. So my first publishing experience, you know, for my fiction really was, you know, like the biggest house there is, you know, just in Manhattan. And it was a great, it was great. I loved my editor. I loved the people I was working with. Stuff was good. They knew who I was. It was like, they knew what I stood for. At one point, Random House made me write a statement of faith to have on file. Whenever they had people trying to cancel me, they would send out my statement of faith. This is what he actually thinks. You know, it's like, it was, I was never, I was never a secret as far as like, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer. Um, and, and I'm a, the kind of Christian that means it. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a pretend one. Um, so then when it came time to work in Hollywood, it was very much the same. I've never been off the radar. I've never been in hiding. I'm not sneaking in. I'm not putting in my fake nose ring to go in for meetings. You know, it's like, it's, uh, I'm me and it's not hard to Google me and know who I am. And so I've been able to work with, um, the biggest, some of the biggest names in Hollywood on different projects. And it's never, you know. It's always just been Dan, Daniel and Babylon. Hmm. And when I've tried to work in Nashville, when I've tried to work in Christian film, like when I've, when I've had those meetings, the same thing happens. When they say what they want, this is what they want. This is what they're pursuing. I say, hey, here's great. I've got one for you. And they're like, but we need that awkward gospel presentation. We need that, you know, we can't just have it be a good story that actually reinforces uh, the you know the importance of family or fatherhood or think no we need it like we need it really really like on like a clown nose on top. Yes. Uh, so I've never I've never fit in the faith market ever, and I've only ever fit in the big secular Babylon of storytelling. And so working over at Netflix was didn't feel even new or different to me. Mm -hmm. um, and I I know there's a lot of uh, believers who who kind of struggle with the question of whether they should ever support a big, a big corporation. Um, but I think we're, we're kind of all in Babylon, you know, like we're all, we're all here. Like I'm talking to you on an iPhone, you know, it's like, this is, I, I have Amazon prime because I like free shipping. You know, it's like, there's like, I'm getting stuff off of Amazon. I'm wearing Nikes because they fit my feet best. I like, I'm talking to you on an iPhone None of that is an endorsement. None of those things are an endorsement of those companies. Uh, and I, I feel the same way about Netflix. I loved working with those people. It was a blast. Had a great time. Um, would work with them again. I don't know if they'd work with me again. But, you know, it's like that's well, that's how I want it to go. I wanted to cut that direction. Um, my, my dad told me a long time ago, he's like, I'll speak into any microphone. It's funny when somebody wants to put a microphone in front of me, I'll speak into any microphone. They're going to pull the plug on me before I, you know, before I hold myself back and refuse to go speak to them. Nice. Nice. So I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the gist there. I love it. No, that makes a ton of sense. And that's really encouraging. And like you said, it's really hard. Like once you start, you know, 
taking what might feel like a uh, kind of a virtuous, you know, uh, self-righteous stance. You're like, well, man, to be consistent in this area, I'm going to, you know, have to be doing a lot of, you know, home sewing and I'm going to have to be doing a lot of, you know, home gardening here. You're just, you're, your life's going to have to change dramatically. And you know what? If people want to do that, then good, good on them. That's awesome. Yeah. I just, I'm not, I am not called to milk my own chickens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, under, understandably. Well, Andy, thank you so much for doing this. You've been so generous with your time. And I know it's so encouraging for me to hear, um, you know, your outlook on everything. And we're really grateful for all the content that you have created, you know, all of your books, which, you know, we'll link all of our listeners to where they can find those. And then, um, your podcast has been a huge encouragement to me, uh, and my wife, honestly, from a, I think it's my number one favorite parenting podcast, even though that's not, you know, you don't call it a parenting podcast, but my wife and I both, I think have learned more, um, and implemented more things into our parenting from your podcast, uh, over the last year than anything else. So thank you so much for all that you do. And, um, yeah, just blessings to you and, and, and keep putting out great work. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Yes. All right. Bye-bye. Cheers. <laughs>